All right. Well, come on in and uh, we're going to get into, we're going to finish up what we didn't finish last week in um, Exodus chapter 15, and then we'll go into chapter 16. And uh, when we were in chapter 15 last time, we saw this beautiful song that the Lord put on Moses' heart uh, as they were celebrating their deliverance from the bondage of Egypt, and more importantly, the deliverance of the people of Israel from Pharaoh's army who was pursuing them and had them seemingly trapped against the, back of the Red Sea only to have the Lord part the sea, bring them through it, and then use that very sea to destroy Pharaoh's army. And so Moses uh, just breaks forth in song, and, uh, and it's a, just a wonderful example of the kind of uh, song of thanksgiving and praise that we see throughout the book of Psalms. And, uh, and, and many important points came out of that, uh, not the least of which that the very, the very events that, that transpired that inspired this song will become part of the legacy of the children of Israel so that people who encounter them in the future will know that they were the people whose God delivered them from an impossible situation with majesty and with might and, uh, and so in, in the blessing that God brings on his people, he magnifies and he glorifies his name. And that, by the way, is true of the amazing things that God does in our lives. This is why, for example, as we approach the 18th of June when we're going to have our baptism picnic, one of the great things that uh, is a feature of that picnic is we gather on the shore of the Jordan Lake there and as we are celebrating the, the salvation of those who step forward and are baptized, uh, other people in the park are, are witnessing this and they see the might and the power and, and the mercy and the grace of God. And, and I believe last year and a couple years ago in both those instances, people on the beachhead came and actually got baptized. And so, um, you know, whenever we allow the Lord to have his way in our lives, we become a living epistle. We become a testimony for his greatness and his goodness. And this has an influence on the world in which we live. Well, the song doesn't just end with Moses because when we pick it up in verse 20, we, we see Miriam, the sister of Moses, bringing out the women's song and dance group. And we read there that Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took the timbrel in her hand and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances. And Miriam answered them, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. And we should, we should never be reluctant to take the time to celebrate when God does amazing things in our midst. I mean, I think some of that we do on Wednesday nights when we start the night with prayer and we give thanks and praise for things that God has done. And, uh, and certainly that's what they're doing here with this song. This, by the way, verse 20, is the first time in the scripture where Miriam is identified or mentioned by name. And she's described here as the sister of Aaron. And so we can assume um, pretty easily that she is also the sister of Moses. In fact, uh, when we get to Numbers 26, verse 40, 59, uh, that particular verse identifies the children of Amran and Jochebed, who are the parents of Moses, they identify the children as Aaron, Moses, and Miriam. And we know that it was the sister 
of baby Moses who orchestrated his being placed into this little ark and put onto the river near where Pharaoh's daughter would be. She was the one who brokered the deal for her mom to become the wet nurse for what turns out to be her own biological son. And, uh, and so we're quite certain that uh, this Miriam is the sister of Aaron, but also the sister of Moses. And she's identified here as a prophetess. And so this would indicate that she had some notable spiritual gift that allowed her to speak forth truth of God. Um, she was certainly a leader, as we can see here in the passage, because she's the one that kind of encouraged the women to gather together to sing this song of praise to the Lord. Uh, unfortunately, when you get to Numbers chapter 12, she kind of uses her leadership position in an unwise and ungodly way because she, she becomes part of this little uh, palace revolt, shall we say, uh, against Moses. And of course, the Lord deals with that rather harshly. And so um, that, that's our introduction to Miriam by name. And then we carry on in verse 22 of chapter 15, and we read, So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. Then they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Now when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Marah. Now, Marah means bitter, so that's why they called it that. Um, and, and the people complained against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? So he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. When he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made a statute and an ordinance for them, and he tested them and said, if you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. And then they came to Elam, where there were 12 wells of water and 70 palm trees, so they camped there by the waters. Now, uh, if you have one of these study Bibles that has the maps in the back and you see the track that the children of Israel took in the wilderness, you're going to notice, and it's described here, but you've got to be familiar with where these individual places are, that Moses is leading the people in a way that is uh, curious in the sense that it is not the direct way to the promised land. Uh, it's estimated that they could have made it into the promised land in 10 days if they took what was known as the Via Mare, the, 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 pass, the, the trade route that went along the eastern shore of the Mediterranean Sea. But the Lord is, is doing something different here. Uh, knowing that the, the, the future of his people, Israel, would require great faith, great faithfulness, fidelity, uh, trust in the Lord. He is bringing them into a classroom of all kinds of trials and testing. And, uh, and so here they are. They're heading into a wilderness. I mean, if you track where the way the, the route is described here, they're actually heading south, south and east. They're not heading north. And, and, and east along that Via Mare, they're, they're heading kind of this way towards the, the bottom tooth of the Sinai. They're heading towards Mount Sinai is what they're actually doing. And um, they've gone now three days and they haven't encountered water yet. And, you know, three days without water is about, 
you're, you're starting to get to the limits of what human physiology can stand without having water. And so they're having this long, long uh, track looking for water. And then the supreme irony of it is they find water and it's bitter. It's water that is not potable. It's, it tastes terrible. It's like a cruel joke. Ah, look, there it is. And then they come up to it and it's terrible. But interesting enough, the Lord, Moses cries out to the Lord and the Lord shows him a tree. Now we don't have it identified here in the text what kind of tree it is, um, but we do have the news here that when the, let's assume the branches, the bark of this tree are cast into the waters, it, it takes the bitterness out of the water and it makes it drinkable. And of course, there's a lot of uh, speculation as to what effect the tree had on the waters that made it potable. And we could, we could satisfy ourselves to simply say that the Lord could have changed that water with the word of his mouth. But very often the Lord will work through human agency, you know, something that the Lord commands, do this and you will get this result. Uh, Jesus, for example, spit in the dirt, made some mud and restored somebody's sight. Did he, was that spiritually necessary? No, but what the Lord was doing was he was using something to release the faith of those that were receiving the blessing. So it could have been that. Uh, other scholars have, uh, have assumed that some of the chemical properties of the sap and the bark of this tree um, was able to cause the minerals in the water that made it so unpalatable to sink to the bottom so that the water on top was drinkable. And there's even further speculation that in the water itself, there were significant amounts of magnesium and calcium. And those two minerals in the water act as kind of a laxative. And that laxative effect basically cleaned out the gut of the people who are consuming the water. And the advantage of that is that if, you know, having come from Egypt, they would likely have had the same uh, infirmities that the Egyptian people suffered from, which would be amoebic dysentery, another disease, a terrible thing called Bilhar Bilharzia, which uh, is a parasite that lives in, in the body. It's like these little miniature flukes that are waterborne and sometimes foodborne that get into the body and just wreak all kinds of trouble in the body. And so the idea is that the Lord is actually prescribing the right medicine uh, to prepare his people for the trek that they are about to be on. I mean, very often the Lord is taking care of us in ways we don't anticipate or see, and yet he's doing things. And if we are obedient to the things that he's, he's prescribing to us, we find peace, provision, and protection through the obedience that we have to God's word. And so that's, that's kind of what's going on here. Um, you might say that the Lord not only wanted his people out of Egypt, but he wanted to get the Egypt out of his people. Uh, you know, the old saying, you can take the girl out of New York, but you can't take the New York out of the girl. Uh, it's the same here. It's, he's using this 40-year trek to purge them, body, mind, and soul, from what they what they had become as uh, slaves of Egypt. And so he's here and he's testing 
Israel. We, we see it right there in, in verses 25, 6, and 7, that this is, this is the Lord working in the lives of his people through trial. This is one of the hardest things that we encounter as Christians. Uh, we've been, we, we just spent uh, the last 45 minutes in the other room. It seems like we've been praying for an awful lot of people who are going through uh, the kind of trials where their lives hang in the balance. And what we often see in those, those supreme moments of truth, uh, what we can see is, is a wavering faith. It's like, well, it was pretty easy to believe everything God's word said when I wasn't facing the ultimate sanction of my mortality. But now that I am, I'm not so sure kind of thing. And these are, these are moments that God has carefully constructed. We're all going to face them, right? Many of you already have faced them. Some of you here are cancer survivors or whatever. You understand that when you get the kind of news, oh, three days with no water, now here's the water and we can't drink it. Um, I just got a diagnosis and that di- I went on Google. I read about that diagnosis and there's a 30% chance that I could die from this or whatever the news is. These are moments that God gives us. And as we saw on Sunday, when Paul, we, we, we went to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul talks about this thorn in the flesh that the Lord gave him. And he prayed three times, Lord, remove this from me. This is in my way. This is keeping me from being all I could be for you. I could do so much more. I could do so much more. If, Lord, you would just take this from me. And the Lord's answer is, my grace is sufficient for you. In your weakness, I'm made strong. And so, uh, you know, the Lord is bringing these people to a place where they can be of use to him, where, where they, can, they can be the people of God that he's called them to be. And I love what he says here. He says, uh, verse 26, if you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. The Hebrew name, uh, Jehovah Rapha. I am the Lord who heals you. I will not bring the afflictions that you saw and suffered in Egypt. I will not bring those upon you if you will just follow my way, follow my word. Uh, A man by the name of Dr. S.I. McMillan wrote the book, None of These Diseases. And he notes in that book that many of God's laws to Israel had a direct impact on hygiene and health. You know, we see people look at the Mosaic law and particularly the dietary law, the kosher law and all that, and they make fun of it. And they say, well, that, you know, that's how crazy the Jewish religion was. They have to do all these things, jump through hoops of fire and this and that. But the practices such as circumcision, uh, the quarantining that the law required in different situations, the washing of hands in running water, the eating of kosher food made a medical difference in the lives of God's people, kept them healthy, gave them long lives, made them stronger than the peer nations that they were in the midst of. And so the Lord is basically telling them that, look, follow my word, follow my way. And I will not put upon you the diseases on which I brought on the Egyptians. It's a pretty good value proposition, follow the Lord. And so um, 
that's the way the, the chapter concludes. But now we move into the famous account of God's miraculous supernatural provision for his people. He's going to take them through the wilderness. He's going to sustain them for 40 years. How's he going to do that? And here's where we get introduced to a symbology that carries all the way through scripture. This is right here, the genesis of that principle of Jesus being the bread of life. This this is right here where it begins. This is where the paradigm is established. And so we read in verse 16, I'm sorry, chapter 16, verse 1. They journeyed from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came into the wilderness of sin. Now, let me just say, that word sin doesn't have a connotation that's significant in terms of that's a place of sin, although it will turn out to be. In fact, in some places, uh, that word sin is actually uh, translated zin, Z-I-N, instead of S-I-N. But the wilderness of sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. If you look down a map of the Sinai Peninsula, You'd see Elam up sort of on the, on the western mid-side of the Sinai Peninsula. And Sinai is down more in the center of the little bottom tooth part. Um, so they're heading in that direction. Uh, on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. So this is a month from when they left Egypt. They've been now on the road for a month. Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, where we sat by the pots of meat, and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Now here begins something that the children of Israel proved to be uh, world leaders in. And that was murmuring. Murmuring is kind of uh, creating this, this rubble and rabble of complaint. And typically when people complain against their leadership, inevitably, we're seeing this now in, in the context of our society, inevitably the murmurers ascribe bad motives to the leaders. They're saying here that, that you guys, you guys have brought us out into this wilderness to kill us. In other words, your purpose in leading us away from the Egyptians and through the Red Sea and into the wilderness is so that you could kill us out here, which, of course, is patently ridiculous. It's not like Moses got any kind of uh, personal benefit by what he's doing. No, in fact, uh, he's put his life on the line. Uh, He has suffered right along with them. And this murmuring is completely without Merit, and also characteristic of murmuring, is selective remembrance. Because you see there in verse 3, they're saying, oh, it was so great when we sat by the pots of meat and we ate bread to the full. It was so great in Egypt. Oh, that we could go back. And frankly, a lot of times when Christians backslide, that's the kind of mentality that that they have going on in their head. Oh, it was so much better when I had my hands on the wheel. Now Jesus has the wheel and uh, he just brought me out here to kill me or he, you know, he brought me out here to starve or whatever it is. 
you know, they're saying here that, oh, it was so great in Egypt. They forgot the point in time when Pharaoh was saying, look, uh, we're not going to give you any straw to make your bricks. You got to go get that on your own and all this other stuff that was really put upon them that was, that was uh, you know, holding them in bondage. And it was, it was really terrible for them, but they're not remembering that part. Um, they're only remembering that it, what they remembered is better than what's going on now. And again, there's a transferable principle there for us. If we are following the direction of God, then we have to understand that the good that's coming out of that is a greater good than the one we have in mind, even if the one we have in mind has a more immediate payoff in terms of comfort, prosperity, or whatever. Uh, again, we were talking about this last night in the men's Bible study. When, when we are in the center of God's will and the center of God's will brings us into hardship, and I think it was you, Art, that said, and that's perfect. And the question I raised to the group was, by what standard? You see, if we measure outcomes and, and situations on the basis of the standard of our agenda, we could see a lot of the things that God brings into our life as bad. If we measure them against God's objectives, his standard, his plan, perfect would be the right answer. And so, you know, they're not seeing that right now. They don't have the ability to see that right now. But the Lord has got something in mind here. And this is going to establish one of the most important aspects of their relationship with God that they could possibly have. And that's trust and reliance. Not reliance on self, but reliance on God Almighty. Verse 4, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. Now, the word bread there, you could take more generally as food. I will rain food or bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in. And it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. Obviously, what God is making provision for is recognition of the Sabbath. The seventh day would be a day of rest. The, it, going out to collect manna would be work. God doesn't want that to happen on the seventh day. And so on the sixth day, he allows them to collect a double portion. Verse six. Well, let's stop right there for a moment. Uh, this idea of raining bread on the people, it's, it's being described here as being granted under condition or with responsibility for obedience. God says, here's a provision I'm going to make for you. If, if you want to enjoy and receive this provision, there's a responsibility on your part to be obedient. And this, would, this whole thing has as one of its primary um, objectives to enforce or to develop in them obedience. Um, and, and this is the famous manna, uh, Psalm 78, verse 24 and 5 refers to it. God had rained down manna on them to eat and given them bread of heaven. Men ate angels' food. He sent them food to the full. So we see here clearly a celebration of God's provision. Uh, Numbers 11, verses 7 and 9 will give us more detail on what this substance was actually like. Now, the manna was like coriander seed, and its color like the color of delium, which kind of had like a pearly, whitish, grayish color. 
The people went about and gathered it, ground it on millstones or beat it in, in the mortar, cooked it in pans and made cakes of it. And its taste was like the taste of pastry prepared with oil. And when the dew fell on the camp in the night, manna fell on it. And so this substance, there's never been anything like it. There's no assurance that there will ever be anything like it again. But obviously, as the food from heaven that sustained these people for 40 years, the nutritional value of it was perfect, right? And so Moses is going to tell the people about this wonderful provision that God is making. Verse 6, then Moses and Aaron said to all the children of Israel, at evening you shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your complaints against the Lord. But what are we that you complain against us? Also Moses said, this shall be seen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and in the morning bread to the full. For the Lord hears your complaints which you make against him. Now notice that distinction. In verse 7, he, he, he says you're complaining against us. But in verse 8, he clarifies and says, really, you're complaining against the Lord. Because this is his plan, and this is his provision, and sometimes his provision uh, comes in his timing, which means that there might be periods of hunger while you wait for the Lord's provision. He says, and, and what are we? Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses spoke to Aaron, say to the, all the congregation of the children of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your complaints. Now it came to pass as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the children of Israel that they looked towards the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I have heard the complaints of the children of Israel. Speak to them saying, at twilight you shall eat meat and in the morning you shall be filled with bread and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And so the message they are getting is the same message we get in Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. You've heard it said before. I've said it many times before. The promise that God gives us is he will fulfill our need. He won't fulfill all our wildest dreams and desires. He won't address our greeds. He will fulfill our needs. And he will do it in his time and in his way. And very often his way is in a way that we don't, anticipate and maybe we wouldn't even approve of until it visits us and we see the wisdom of it. Uh, this, this manna is described as food from heaven um, and it ultimately reflects or, or establishes the principle of Jesus Christ as the perfect sustenance for the person of God. And this is something Jesus himself spoke to. He, he drew a line directly from the manna that was supplied to the children of Israel in Moses' time to the supply of the need of every human being ever to have lived in the provision of Jesus Christ as God's Messiah. And Jesus spoke this in John 6, verse 58. He said, this is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead, he who eats this bread will live forever. Now, obviously, as Jesus is speaking these words, he's probably gesticulating towards himself. When he says, 
This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate. They ate manna that came down, but ultimately they died. What he's saying is he who eats this bread lives forever. Now, obviously, Jesus is not speaking in a literal sense. This is one of those times where context tells us very clearly this is a metaphorical uh, speech. He's not uh, conveying to anyone that they must actually chow down on his flesh and blood. Uh, there were those that missed that particular aspect of this sermon and, and says that they followed Jesus no more. I said, boy, this guy is absolutely crazy. But this same theme of, the, of Jesus as the bread of life, you find it even in the book of Revelation. In the letter to the church at Pergamum, uh, Pergamum in Revelation 2, 17, one of the promises that the Lord makes to that church says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. And again, people who do not have literacy in the Old Testament, look at that statement in Revelation. They say, well, there's another one of those illustrations in the, in the book of Revelation that's so obtuse. Who could know it? How does anybody know what this book says? Well, see, they're completely missing what... What is being established right here in chapter 16 of, of Exodus, and that is that this, this provision from heaven for people who are deeply needy, who are people who will literally die in the absence of this provision, and, and here it comes from heaven. And that sets up the paradigm of understanding that, okay, we're all needy people. We literally will die without a provision from heaven. Here comes, as Jesus referred to it in John 5, uh, 6, 58, this, Jesus, is the bread which came down from heaven. He who eats this bread will live forever. And so it's, it's established there that this hidden manna in Revelation 2 is a symbolic p uh, picture of Jesus Christ. And those who, uh, he says, to the one who is victorious, in other words, the one who finds the way. The one who moves towards the light, as John the Apostle described it. They are the ones who receive. It's called secret manna because it's not something that everybody in, in every spiritual condition receives. It's only for those who move to the light. It's only for those who receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Just to give you a little bit more of what that John chapter 6 says as Jesus is making this connection... Jesus says very clearly in John 6, 48 through 51, and then verse 58 at the end of that, I am the bread of life. I, Jesus, am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh which I shall give for the life of the world. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. Now, when he talks about giving his flesh, he's clearly referring to his sacrifice on the cross. He's saying, here I come as a human being just like you. And as much as we know that Jesus Christ is God, Jesus Christ also, like any other human being, valued his human life. And so never be romanced by the idea that, because this was one that, that tripped me up for years. Resurrection of, or the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. 
okay, you know, it's, it's, it's a big part of our faith, but what's the big deal? He's God, right? I mean, how bad could it be? Well, this completely ignores that hypostatic union of Christ is fully human, Christ is fully God, and in his fully human form, he has all of the same aspects of human life that we do, save for one, of course, he was without sin, but he was not without sorrow, he was not without pain, he was not without dread or, or, or sorrow. All of these things were a feature of his life just as they are for yours and mine. And so he's, he's really like telling the people that I am going to give my flesh and my blood as that perfect spiritual food that will give you life and life eternal, not just uh, to last 40 years, but to last for an eternity. And this is the symbol, this hidden manna that is referenced in Revelation 2.17 is Jesus. We don't ingest Jesus in a physical way. We, we ingest or take him on board in a spiritual, emotional, intellectual way. You know, we ascend with mind and spirit, right? And, and you could even say body because then we're supposed to make ourselves captive to the Lord and that includes our actions as well. And so we carry on in our text, verse nine, Moses spoke to Aaron, say to all the congregation of the children of Israel, come near before the Lord for he has heard your complaints. Now it comes to pass as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the children of Israel that they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in, in the cloud. So they're seeing the pillar of cloud that the Lord is going to ultimately um, inhabit to guide them through the wilderness. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I have heard the complaints of the children of Israel. Speak to them saying at twilight, you shall eat meat and the morning you shall be filled with bread and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God. So now comes the fulfillment of that promise. So it was that quails came up at the evening and covered the camp. And in the morning, do lay all around the camp. Now, these quail, actually, these are literal quail that would come. They actually migrated from Europe through the Sinai Peninsula. The Egyptians found them as a delicacy. They were actually very good eating birds. The Egyptians loved them. And so the Lord is bringing a horde of those to provide meat for them in the evening and then the manna in the day. Now, here's a question that... Uh, um, I've encountered before, I've actually thought about before. And, um, well, here it is. We know, because of the interaction between Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh, that the children of Israel possessed great herds and flocks. Because there was bargaining, well, you can go, but your animals stay. You can go, but the children stay. You know, So we know that they had herds. They were, they were shepherds. This is why they were moved to the eastern side of Egypt, because... The Egyptians considered the profession of shepherding and herdsmen to be, you know, beneath them, and they didn't want to mix with that sort of thing. So the question is, if they are moving with all these flocks through the wilderness, why are they so concerned about what they're going to eat? I mean, lamb's pretty good, and uh, there's milk, and there's all these things that um, animals provide in the way of food. And the answer to that question is, it's not given to us. Now, there's a lot of speculation. Um, there's at least three that I've seen. Uh, one is, 
that as shepherds and herdsmen, that's their livelihood. And they're counting on getting to the promised land. They don't want to get there as pulpers with no profession, no resources. And so if they start consuming their animals, um, you know, that, 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 that impoverishes them. That's one idea. Uh, another idea is that in the 400 and some years that they were living in Egypt, they actually took on board the worship practices of the Egyptians. And we know the Egyptians had a whole range of gods, most of which were tied to specific animals. We know, for example, uh, how they felt about cows and frogs and you know animals like that. And so they may have had a sensibility that they shouldn't eat those things. We don't know. Um, there's, there's different theories like that, but I find it dangerous to go to places where scripture doesn't take us. Um, you know, the one about the animals being sacred in some way, I mean, you could, you, you could kind of be moved in that direction because ultimately when they lost faith in what Moses was doing on Mount Sinai, what did they fashion to worship? Why they fashioned a golden cow, golden calf. But, um, I personally wouldn't go there and teach it as thus saith the Lord, because like I say, it's not found in scripture. Um, but this, this manna that he's going to provide at night, uh, we see there in verse 14, when the layer of dew lifted there, there on the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance as fine as frost on the ground. So when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? Of course, that is actually what the word manna means. What is it? What is this stuff? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, this is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. Now, much like, uh, you know, scholars of our time try to find an explanation for manna in the nat our understanding of the natural world, and they did this with the parting of the Red Sea. Well, it was a very shallow part, and the wind was very special, and it blew the water away. And No. But there have been that kind of speculation here. Uh, there's a thing that's known in, um, in uh, that part of the world, and among the Arabs of that part of the world, it's known as man, M-A-N-N. -N, and it's formed when tiny insects puncture the bark of the tamarisk tree, and they drink the sap of the tree, and then they excude, or basically excrete a, a clear liquid that solidifies into a sugary substance. And so the idea is that, well, maybe, and, and by the way, when that sugary substance has light, the sunshine on it, then it disappears. So it sounds a lot like this. Again, What's described with this man is not something that could sustain anybody for even a week. Secondly, why do people reading the Bible as the Bible feel compelled to develop a naturalistic explanation for something that God did? We are told, I read a couple of passages of scripture, manna is described as coming from heaven, it's the food of angels, etc., etc., in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Can he create manna? I think so. And he could create it out of nothing. And so this comes down in the morning. Uh, it's like frost on the ground. Uh, they have no idea what it is. I, I think they may have known what man was in their day, and they didn't identify it as that. 
And Moses answers them in verse 15, says, this is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Let every man gather it according to each one's need. See, he's not saying, look, create a manna exchange, develop some inventory and start, uh, you know, start a, a, a manna exchange where people can trade futures and manna and all that. No, you gather according to each one's need, one omer for each person. Now, the unit of measure known as omer, it kind of changed over time. A um, couple of descriptions I saw was uh, a container big enough to hold 43 eggs, uh, a container large enough to contain four dry quarts. Figure it's like a, a gallon uh, of volume, something like that. Um, According to the number of persons, let every man take for those who are in his tent. Then the children of Israel did so and gathered some more, some less. So when they measured it by omers, he who gathered much had nothing left over and he who gathered little had no lack. Every man had gathered according to each one's need. So you see here now the Lord is establishing a very clear principle. He does not want them to stockpile manna because in so doing, now they, they don't have a day-to-day -day reliance upon the Lord. The Lord is saying, I will provide for you each day. And, and, and the, the discipline or the character fruit that I want you to understand I'm building in you is that you're trusting me for tomorrow's provision. You have what you need today. And you're trusting that I, God, will provide what you need tomorrow. This is a great way to live for people like us. Moses said, let no one leave any of it till morning. Now, of course, people can't resist. So verse 20, notwithstanding, they did not heed Moses. Surprise, surprise. But some of them left part of it until morning and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Now he's angry with them because once again, by so doing, by saving some for the next day, they are in essence saying, I don't trust the Lord to provide tomorrow's portion. So they gathered it every morning, every man according to his need. And when the sun became hot, it melted. Now, uh, this is a lesson of dependence upon God. Uh, we'll read when you get to it in Deuteronomy 8.3. Speaking to the people, he said, He, God, humbled you, allowing you to hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you to know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Now, obviously, this was precisely what Jesus quoted to Satan in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, when Satan is trying to induce him to change stones into bread because uh, Jesus had not eaten for 40 days and Jesus goes right back to Deuteronomy chapter 8 in saying that, look, God provides, God feeds, God sustains. My reliance is upon him. Uh, I don't live just on my ability to gather resources and protect myself. I live by every word that proceeds out of God's mouth. And this was the, the example that Jesus established for us, which, of course, is a good one. And this is precisely what the Lord is doing with manna. You know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, the famous pastor, 
he made this observation. He said, you know, God teaches, God is teaching his people through food, which is exactly the way we teach animals, don't we? Uh, Spurgeon wrote, animals are often taught through their food. When they cannot, could not be reached in any other way, they have been instructed by their hunger and by their thirst and by their feeding. And we all do that. You know, you want to train your dog, you got a pocket full of treats, sit, dance, turn around, give me your paw, here's a treat, you know? And, and the Lord is kind of, you know, kind of takes us down to that level, but sometimes that's where we are. And, uh, and so he's establishing some things that are very important in his people. Reliance on the Lord every day. The need to work to provide for your family. Notice he said that each one of you, you go out and you gather in the morning for the people in your tent. It's not like uh, wealthy people hire uh, poor people. Look, will you go and get a couple of omers for us uh, while you're getting your own and I'll pay you in whatever. Uh, he's, he's teaching him a work ethic. You got to do this in the morning because when the sun comes up, it's gone. And so there's no lazing around in bed saying, well, I'll get it at 10 o'clock. No. Uh, work ethic. Trust in the Lord. Provide you, provide for your family. Don't be a burden on others. All of that is being established here. Uh, verse 22, and so it was on the sixth day that they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one, and all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses. Then he said to them, this is what the Lord hath said. Tomorrow is a Sabbath, a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake today and boil what you will boil and lay up for yourselves all that remains to be kept until morning. So in this one instance, on this one day, the sixth day, you can gather a double portion and prepare it so that it will be ready to be consumed on the Sabbath rest day. And this was a, a, a yet another principle he is establishing here, which is the Sabbath rest. And so they laid it up until morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink, nor were there any worms in it. Then Moses said, eat that today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather, gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. Now, surprise, surprise, it happened that some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, for the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, he gives you on the sixth day bread for two days. Let every man remain in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. And the house of Israel called its name manna. And it was like white coriander seed. And the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Then Moses said, this is the thing which the Lord hath commanded. Fill an omer with it to be kept for your generations that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. So the Lord is now commanding them to actually keep a pot of this as a memorial that they could show to future generations. And we know that that's one of the things that ultimately will be found in the Ark of the Covenant. And Moses said to Aaron, take a pot and put an omer of manna in it and lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. Now that's kind of a future looking statement, I think there in verse 34. And the children of Israel ate manna 40 years until they came 
to the an inhabited land. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Now an omer is one-tenth of an ephah. So there is the establishment of the principle of God's provision for the life of his people. In, in Moses' context, it's literal food that they ate to sustain their bodies, but that sets up the, the paradigm for God making the spiritual provision of the life of Jesus Christ as that manna from heaven, that bread from heaven, and, uh, and that's what sustains us to this day. I think we'll stop there, and we'll pick it up next time in chapter 17. Heavenly Father God, we thank you, Lord, for these words of truth, Lord, for this wonderful example for us, Lord, to know that we do not live by bread alone. We do not live by the toil and the ingenuity of our own hands and minds, Lord. We live by every word that proceeds forth from the Lord. And so, God, let us never forget that, Lord. Let us never be so self-reliant and self-sufficient that we forget that everything that there is is yours and everything that we enjoy is through your grace and we are beholden to and reliant upon you for each and every day. Lord, thank you for meeting us here tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen, amen.